0: You are listening to Homeschool Parents Podcast, the podcast where we chat all about the family project of homeschooling. I'm Joy Cherick. You can find me at litandlilies.com. I'm joined by my husband, Kevin Cherick. He blogs at homeschoolexperiment.com.
1: Today we're going to talk about John Taylor Gatto and his 14 Principles of Elite Schools. These principles, to me, look a lot like goals, and so I thought it would be an interesting contrast to the five goals that Joy and I put together in a a previous episode, and he really is trying to shed some light on what the so-called elite get out of sending their children to the top 20 or so elite boarding prep schools, which have educated presidents and Supreme Court justices and so on throughout the the history of our nation. And so it's interesting to think about historically how America's elites have educated their kids and what they have prided themselves on, what goals they wanted to get. We will send our kids to Groton, and this is what I want my kids to get when they leave that school. And it's just interesting to think as— we educate our own children if this is what we want to do some of it none of it
0: what time period in education is Gatto referring to here is this all 20th century education is that where he's looking at are we looking at a specific time period well that this video
1: this video was probably taken in the first part of the 21st century and uh he doesn't say a particular time period. I think he's probably talking about 20th century. Right. Like up to the current day. When I look at some of their websites now, it looks like their marketing has changed, but I don't know if that is reflective of their curriculum and what they're Like right now, you go to <clears throat> like Phillips Exeter... And their front page on their website is like all about being a maker and it's like a work desk in a workshop and there's tools and sawdust and we're going to solder some things together. And that has nothing to do with Gatto's 14 principles.
0: So one of the videos we looked at, Gatto was referring to 1940s Harvard. Yeah. Is this pulling from some of those ideas as well?
1: That's just emblematic of one of the principles. Of one of them, right? Yeah. Okay. So, without further ado, we're going to jump right in to John Taylor Gatto's analysis of what the fourteen principles of elite boarding schools are and what they teach. The first one is: No kid should graduate without a theory of human nature developed through the study of history, philosophy theology literature and law
0: well that's interesting because uh, they have theology on there and theology is grossly excluded from our educational system in America today
1: well remember a lot of these schools have historically had Christian explicit yep. Christian, founding and and mission um and i didn't really know what to do with this first principle at first i didn't really know what it was talking about And as i thought about okay that every graduate should have a theory of human nature this is really what is man uh, what are the unchanging components of man over over time and over history
0: what makes a human different from the animals yeah is an important thing to be able to articulate.
1: Well, and it's also important because if our elites, you know, the governing, ruling body that makes up the boardroom, the court systems, uh, the academic halls, uh, the government, the yeah, the halls of government. I think we're suffering right now a little bit in our politics because it's clear and evident that a lot of people who are now in those positions do not have a theory of human nature, or if they do, it is completely uninformed by history, completely uninformed by philosophy, uh, by law. You know, you can't have a a realistic understanding of human nature and then say that socialism is a workable philosophy.
0: So... That would be the understanding of the study of law, is what you're saying. That particular aspect of how laws, socialism, laws that embrace socialism, how that affects people.
1: Well, I think you would get that through history of the 20th century. Sure. Yes. Uh, That – you can almost look at the history of 20th century as the century of of socialism experiments. Oh yeah. We see it in Russia. We see yeah. it in Cuba. We see it in China. We and you know now in the 21st century of Venezuela, we see it in uh, Cambodia, everywhere. Doesn't go well. Hundreds of millions of deaths. Yeah. F- s- famine, mm-hmm. starvation, yeah. wars. Uh, this is not 1346. This is the 20th century, uh, and we have. You know, well, it just wasn't implemented enough. Philosophy so, of man. So philosophy let's talk speaks about philosophy, mm-hmm. since
0: I'm actually not very familiar with philosophy. Uh, Aristotle, Plato, is that what they're talking about?
1: All the way through the Enlightenment, and you know, Marx is a philosopher. Yeah. Uh, Locke, Hobbes, Thomas Hobbes is okay. a philosopher. Okay. Uh, Descartes is a philosopher. These Nietzsche. We're talking about what what is man about? What are the what is the meaning of life? Kierkegaard yeah. would be a philosopher. You've read your your Kierkegaard, yep. Um, and so, you know, obviously theology. You go through uh, the major monastic uh, monotheistic religions. You go through uh, literature, which is just a way to illustrate these principles in different ways. So I, I think that's a It's really phenomenal because when you have a a theory of human nature grounded in reality, you're going to be able to navigate the world much more cleanly because you're not surprised that people are reacting the way that they do to you, the institutions you're a part of, your family, the government, etc. So I think that is important.
0: There is something that roots a person – when you have a deeper understanding of these elements, I'm specifically thinking of history, Mm. when you understand the background of, um, for instance, you know, what's happening right now in America regarding using the words, civil rights to try to, um, expand ideas well where does that idea come from and it's you know it's just interesting when you understand the history there all right you want to go on to the second one
1: well just one last idea here is that what's interesting about he describes these five pillars of history philosophy theology literature law they really go together and they weave together to create that tapestry uh, because they influence one another. Right. You know, We can look back at the historical founding of the United States, and we can show direct lines to the philosophy well, and true. theology that informed the decisions that the Founding Fathers made at the Continental Congress. We can look at literature that was informed and defended those decisions, yeah. uh, founding and supporting and kind of cheerleading the, the, the themes and ideas of the Revolution. And then obviously they created laws. Um, and so these things all reinforce and stack back on one another, which is why it, you know it's such a mistake to do things in isolation. Mm-hmm. And that kind of harkens back to one of Gatto's famous uh, seven lesson school teacher, which you know he says, "I teach the the disconnected and unconnectedness of everything, mm-hmm. meaning I rain information down at random upon students right. and do not show how it is connected." Which is the opposite of what he says elite well, schools show
0: and. Charlotte Mason talks about this in the science of relations, how everything is interrelated, and we ourselves start making those connections as we study across the um, different array of subjects.
1: So, Gatto's second principle, and I don't know if these are prioritized, but I like to think so.
0: He well, had them written down.
1: Yeah, number two. Every graduate should have a strong experience with the active literacies. And he points this out a number of times in a couple different speeches and talks that he gives this idea of active literacies, which he defines as writing and public speaking. He says that you should be able to effectively and persuasively speak or write to any audience. If you can do that, you are strong in the active literacies, writing and public speaking.
0: He says that they are easy to teach. Strong writers become so by writing 300 words per day on a given theme or topic. Public speaking is a skill that is developed by giving each student regular opportunities to speak in front of strangers. Now, is he speaking about high school age students yes. in particular? Yes. Yes. Okay.
1: So <clears throat> they are kind of easy. In yeah. his, literally, you simply have to pick and plan a theme of the day and right. say, "Write three hundred words on this."
0: Well, s- tell about um, what he, what the experiment in Harvard.
1: Yeah, so Harvard apparently in the, 40s. in the forties had a very strong writing program, and a the central part of this writing program was that every student had to submit a thousand word paper,
0: thousand words, thousand word paper
1: every single day. They would come. There was like a bin that you would submit it to at the writing department's offices. And then you never saw it again. You never got it back with uh, being marked up or suggestions or do this. And apparently what they did was they just took them and threw them away every single day. No one ever read them. No one ever looked at them. It was simply the work of having to write a 1,000 words a day, which is what every writer these days will say. What do you have to do to be a great writer? Write. Sit down. Butt to seat. right? <laughs> And just well, write. Because, well, you have to also read, but... Yes, because, well, I read, but I don't write. Yes. So that's, that's yes. maybe necessary, not sufficient. Right. So, and this goes back to Charlotte Mason's concepts, uh, which we have not gone over with the podcast of uh, what verbal and written narration, is that what they call it, or oral narration? Well,
0: she, has, well she starts off with oral narration, yeah for a student that cannot write yet, yeah. and then that trans tra- changes into uh, written narrations. Yeah,
1: and so if you have ever, if you catch yourself rambling in conversation, if you lose your train of thought, if you end up on tangents of tangents of tangents, uh, like I do, you need to be narrating more and writing daily because it teaches your brain how to organize material mm-hmm in a coherent logical manner and communicate it and so that's what Gatto was talking about with regards to the active literacies it's easy it's easy for us teachers give them a theme i want 300 words i think he said that's th- about three pages it takes about three minutes to read that he says to do work at the postgraduate level you need to be able to organize and present a thousand words at the drop of a hat that's what that is and so high school 300 words the public speaking he makes a big deal and an an emphasis that the public speaking must be done in front of strangers so at the beginning this might be done in a classroom setting but very quickly Students will get comfortable with that setting and it's you're no longer getting the practice and developing the skill that you, you know, it might be this class and then it might be a different class in two months. Everybody's got to start presenting in front of a different class. We're going to switch now. And then it's, you know, uh, school wide uh, auditoriums. Of course, this this quickly becomes extremely time constrained if you have 300 kids in your school and every single one of them needs to 299 have to sit down while one of them they each take turns giving speeches well they probably all have in to trouble.
0: find different venues for yeah. doing that for explaining or teaching or whatever yeah. i mean you have to get creative
1: but the emphasis is you must find opportunities to make um, oral presentations to strangers that's the key i and i love for this i love um toastmasters oh yeah it's great as a foundation do you think
0: that works for high school students absolutely absolutely they could could
1: totally do it they could do it by themselves with with likewise or they could do it in in adult chapters yeah absolutely no problem um so those are the two highly recommend the active literacies number three the third principle of elite education, insight into the major institutional forms. Gatto gives the example of the courts, corporations, and the military. Um, I would include government. And I. he didn't expand too much on this. I think it's about navigating and understanding how these institutions operate. I think this is about... Power and the exercise of power through the institutional forms of our culture. You know, how does a city council actually work? How does a school board actually work? Do they just show up and what you see at the public meetings is everything? How does a board of directors for a nonprofit or a company work? How is a hospital actually managed and run? What happens here?
0: So, this made me think about. Ben Benjamin Franklin, All Roads Lead to Ben Franklin. So in the book, Digital Minimalism, he talks about Benjamin Franklin as this great socializer. says he's the great socializer in American history. This is from page 205. His commitment to structured activities and interactions with other people provided this restless founder great satisfaction and more pragmatically speaking, built the foundation for his successes in business and then later politics. Few can mimic the energy Franklin invested into his social leisure, leisure. but we can all extract an important lesson from his approach to cultivating and fulfilling leisure life. Join things. So, Franklin was involved in associations, lodges, volunteer companies, other groups, and other organizations. I mean, it just keeps listing all the different things that he was involved in. And why this is important as we're looking at understanding how the courts, how corporations, and how the military operate. We see a man who's really influential and had a great understanding of human relationships and pulling people together. And he, he even did things with the weather where he would send messages all across the region and would gather information about what was happening in the weather just all around the area that he lived or just even further up and this just shows a great um, just understanding of people but also a curiosity to pull people together so I think we can learn from these f- more formal ways that we've been or- we've organized ourselves through the courts, corporations, the military as John Taylor Gatto talks about.
1: Number 4, the fourth principle of elite schools, repeated exercises in the forms of good manners and politeness based on the truth that politeness and civility are the basis of all future relationships and alliances. Access to any place you'd like to go. Manners have become somewhat passe in our current culture and society. I remember my grandparents for Christmas one year sent me an etiquette book and This was a completely worthless gift. It had information about finger bowls and a level of kind of upper crust fanciness that I had not then and still have not now encountered. And when you are speaking to high schoolers in a public school setting where they are warehoused amongst their peer group only, and that is their almost entire experience, manners are actually a detriment to social standing, which is why my guess is that elite schools give exposure, we've already talked about, to some of these different institutional forms, politics, courts, governance, charitable foundations and non-governmental organizations, uh, the military, all of those things have certain decorum requirements. You may remember a few years ago, there was a big to-do about, you know, no hats and uh, a certain dress code at the United States Senate, and that some politicians were challenging these oppressive, uh, patriarchal modes and codes of conduct but this is the way it has always gone and so gato points out here that you you leave these items out of education at your peril you will be there will be a glass ceiling over how far you can go you know it's been said it's a cliche dress for the job you want and so then we all have these people running around with batman suits on i took this too seriously That's what good manners and politeness get you, and that's something that the the elite want their children to understand and to be fluent in deploying good manners depending on their situation. Being able to read the social situation and adapt themselves to that situation as required.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's something that actually, again, Ms. Mason talks about regarding one's duty. And I think we've lost a sense of duty to one another and even to different stations. So, you know, how do you pull that back? How do you say, okay, these things are important when the ocean that we swim in says no that's not it's not important all right
1: number five
0: number five independent work should comprise 90 percent of a student's
1: academic work now before you go on When Gatto talks about independent work in his classroom, he had grand independent projects that took the whole year that required the student to leave the classroom, find resources and subjects on his own. And so it was really about developing the resourcefulness uh, and, and applying some of these other principles in his independent study rather than simply giving – prepackaged curriculum ideas to a class as a whole or even saying, you know, let's break up into groups and you guys work on this, work on that, which, you know, teamwork and group work is something that we hear lots of educators talking about the need for that because we work in groups. Um, but Gatto says here that, in fact, independent work is 90 percent of what a student should be working on. And he, he says, outright that most of the time it's the inverse that regular schools are 10% independent work, 90% teamwork. And he said he's not, that's not what he observes in elite schools.
0: So when Gacha was working, he was a seventh grade teacher in the New York City mm-hmm. public schools. So that was his practical experience. But again, we're talking about older students. But you can say that all the way down mm-hmm. to six-year-olds mm-hmm. that they need to have – that much independent work. So I pulled this quote from, uh, volume six, chapter one from, uh, toward a philosophy of education by S- Charlotte Mason, because again, it just, these principles that Mason talks about, but that Gatto is cho- talking about, these are universal. These apply to any generation You know, they're bigger than the people who are saying them. So she talks about education is a matter of the spirit, which is a quote that someone said, you know, beyond her time. No wiser word has been said on the subject, and yet we persist in applying education from without as a bodily activity or emollient. We begin to see light. No one knoweth the things of a man, but the spirit of a man which is in him. Therefore, there is no education but self-education, and as soon as a young child begins his education, he does so as a student. Our business is to give him mind stuff, and both quality and quantity are essential. Naturally, each of us possesses this mind stuff only in limited measure. But we know where to procure it, for the best thought the world possesses is stored in books. We must open books to children, the best books. Our own concern is abundant provision and orderly serving. So it's, you know, a lot of words to say. Self-education is the only way someone is going to be educated. And in order to be educated, you must be reading
1: books. The best books. The best. Yeah. I love that. It's very important. Yep. Number six. The sixth principle of elite schools. Energetic, physical sports aren't a luxury, but the only way to confer grace on the human presence. That grace translates into power and money. Physical sports also give practice in handling pain. You can go all the way back to British public schools, which are actually private schools. I'm talking about the officers' corps of the British Navy and Army developed on the fields of Eton. This is through rugby. This is through crew. These are through um, horsemanship energetic physical sports that required something of their men and, and as much as you know I'm kind of coming full circle on sports um, I played football and lacrosse intercollegiately at the college level <clears throat> and you know his point here is you really do get things from physical sports that you don't get that you can't get elsewhere I think a lot of A lot of the qualities and lessons you can gain elsewhere, but it really does hit home and it also speaks specifically to the young man in awakening his masculinity through the exertion of force against another young man and the lessons you learn through dominating someone or being dominated and understanding what that means at a very primal level. So, you know, that's just a fascinating principle to put on here. And uh, I think it's one that we we need to pay attention to.
0: And another quote uh, from School Education, page 103. It would be good work to keep in the front this idea of living under authority, training under authority, serving under authority, a discipline of life readily self-embraced by children in whom the heroic impulse is always strong. We would not reduce the pleasures of childhood and youth by an iota. Rather, we would increase them for the disciplined life has more power of fresh enjoyment than is given to the unrestrained. And now she is talking about the physical training and how important that is. Um, And how as you train in the disciplines of your physical body, then that helps you also learn obedience in other areas. So, you know, just again, how some of these principles um, overlap and are timeless. Number seven, a complete theory of Hold on. I'm not ready yet.
1: I don't think you can leave item number six talking about. Energetic physical sports without talking about Theodore Roosevelt. Oh, yes. The great champion of the strenuous life. Even though he reformed football because people were dying by just plowing head to head (laughs) into one another in the scrum. You know, he was a huge sportsman, loved uh, these types of energetic sports. He was a boxer. He was a boxer. I wish to preach, he says in his speech from 1899 of The Strenuous Life, not the doctrine of ignoble ease, but the doctrine of the strenuous life, the life of toil and effort, of labor and strife, to preach that highest form of success, which comes not to the man who desires mere easy peace, but to the man who does not shrink from danger, from hardship or from bitter toil, and who out of these wins the splendid ultimate triumph. Uh, The strenuous life, I mean... We gotta get this on the wall somewhere. It's long. It's amazing. Uh, Google it. Uh, All right. Love Number seven.
0: A complete theory of access to any workplace or any person. You'd be better off setting a kid the challenge of getting a private meeting with the mayor of Los Angeles and let him work for a year to set that meeting how to access the governor, places, or people that they need.
1: I think this is fascinating. I think it can um, perhaps get a little cute. You know, if you've got a 12-year-old, it seems like it might be easier to get a meeting with uh, some of these powerful politicians than if you're 30. But again, the mechanisms and how that works, you see a, a theme going through here of, access to all areas of society that are quote in charge Um, understanding the institutions um, using good manners and civility and politeness to be able to blend in in these areas they're really teaching about how to how to walk and operate at all levels of power and You you can start off by doing this at the local level and then just go up to the state level and and go as far as you want with it. I think one of the reasons it's so important is because if you don't do this, you find yourself often – you need to reach someone and you don't know how to do it. And this is in some ways a copywriting and a marketing issue. It's some ways I, I don't know how to do this. How do you go talk to your representative? When you give a student the opportunity to find these out, I mean, he says on his own. He's not laying it out. He goes, look, you got a year. Get this thing done. Um, That's not like it needs to be done in three days and we don't really have the time, so I'll just tell you how to do it. It's like you're going to try a few things. You're probably going to fail for a while until you find the key that unlocks the access to this office. So very interesting. You sum that up, a complete theory of access to any workplace or any person. How do you do that? Mm. Um, I might have to just ask a Deerfield graduate, see what they say. All right, number eight. Responsibility as an utterly essential part of the curriculum. Gatto says, yes, this includes washing dishes and cleaning your room, but at elite private boarding schools, their students take care of horses, take some important community service, take leadership in a club, which is actually a lot of work, If you're going to do it right, always grab for responsibility when it is offered and always deliver more than is asked for. Some of the items that I want to point out here on his examples are the stuff has to matter. I really believe strongly in the idea that when you give children something worth doing, they will rise to the occasion. Our kids know, when we ask them to clean their rooms, that nothing hinges on it other than our happiness. You know, if it's clean, if it's not clean, nothing really matters. When you're taking care of an animal, and that animal's going to get sick or die if you don't execute your responsibility... That's
0: what I'm saying.
1: That is a different level of responsibility. When you... Have important community service. Now, the challenge in our culture now is it's hard to find important community service that children can do. You know, I called up a local charity that asks for volunteers and said, I have, you know, a nine year old, a seven year old, and a six year old that I want to get them some community service opportunities. I want them to work shoulder to shoulder with adults. I want them to do something that is helping their community, this in this case is feeding the homeless. Uh, And I want to start to build that into our family routines. I will be there with them. And uh, they're very capable. They do a list as long as your arm of chores around the house. And outside of the house, they're more capable because they actually do everything. And uh, the contact I spoke to said, I'm sorry, you have to be 12 years old. You cannot come volunteer here. You know, we've had bad experiences with kids in the past. This is a working warehouse. Uh, We had children who were misbehaving, running all over. It's a danger. They could get run over by a forklift. They could drop something on themselves, you know. (laughs) And to me, it felt like parents in the past have been uh, shirking their responsibilities and so now they made a blanket statement that, you know, you have to be 12 years old and then you have to be with a parent. Uh, you can't even be 11 years old with a parent. And so, you know, we have to fight a little harder to give our kids these opportunities just because of yeah. Um, well, in the, 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 the
0: past, so um, in the book, Anne of Green Gables, she is sewing every day. So, or they are making bread. They are, clean, you know, In the past, life has not been as easy as it is now. So there were real responsibilities in the home just to live, just to survive, just to be clothed. So now that it's actually cheaper to go to the store and buy your clothing than it is to go buy a ream of fabric and make your own clothes... You know, now we're in this weird world where it feels like when you're making things or you're, you know, going an extra step, it's not actually helping. You know, uh, the guy across the street from us, he is a Mr. Fix-It. I mean, he's always tinkering with something. And the other day um, he was helping us sharpen our knives and the kids looked down, what's that? Well, it was a mask that welders wear. And then he had his welding, you know, anyway, he had all his stuff out there. And it's like, this is a man who knows how to really fix things. And these are the types of people and, that we want our kids to be around. But having that level of responsibility is like, how can you create that um, in a world that everything is so easy it's just everything's easy
1: so to sum that up again i think it's important always teaching the kids always grab for responsibility when it is offered and always deliver more than is asked for you can apply that at the family level the workplace the community Um, and that's that was a hallmark for of elites for centuries
0: yeah and perhaps sports is a good way to be able to apply that in this culture. Um, but you, anyway, number nine.
1: Number nine on principles of elite education. Arrival at a personal code of standards, standards in production, behavior and morality. Um, Gatto did not expand on this concept very much. And so I'm going to move from Gatto to Rafe Esquith, who explicitly teaches the six stages of moral development, according to Lawrence Kohlberg's model. Uh, stage one is I do things to avoid punishment. Why do you clean your room? I don't want my mom and dad to be upset with me and discipline me. Step stage two is self-interested orientation. What's in it for me? Uh, you know stage if stage one is a stick st- stage two is the carrot is oh i clean my room so that i will be able to play with my friends uh, stage three is interpersonal accord and conformity social norms the good boy or good girl uh, i do these things because that i clean my room because that's what a good boy does okay great stage four mm-hmm is authority and social order maintaining orientation, a law and order morality. I do this because of the rules of society. Uh, Stage five is a social contract orientation. And stage six, which few people ever get to, is the universal ethical principles of, I do things because it's important to me.
0: You could also say I do it because it is right.
1: A right according to their personal standard of morality.
0: Well... Remember, we're going to differentiate here for a minute Mm -hmm. that we're not basing things on ourselves. We're basing things on something that's higher than us because, as we saw, and we can link to this article, um, third world countries base things on themselves. First and second world countries base things on a power greater than themselves and a Mm -hmm. higher authority. god I think all of the second yeah, world countries are yeah. God, and mm-hmm. then um, the first world countries were even like historic. Um, yeah, this
1: was this was um, categorizing the world differently than what we think of as first and third world according to economic development. Yeah. It's a different – so when we say first world, we don't mean economically developed. The U.S. or third world, we don't mean – We mean the mindset. It's a different – it's a different uh, – yeah of grade um number 10 familiarity with the master creations in music painting dance sculpture design architecture literature and drama to be at ease with the arts apart from religion the arts are the only way to transcend the animal materiality of our lives Mm -hmm. i think again we can point to a failure in art appreciation in our culture which is why we are so obsessed with the material and the consumerist culture that we have. There's no beauty in our culture anymore. You know, can you really honestly say that the music that we're producing broadly today is better than the music from the baroque period? Like great classical music. I mean, you have to be insane to say, yes, I think that, you know, this Britney Spears pop music is, is you know, majestic on the level of, you know, Bach, Beethoven, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so we've got a real problem there. And I was listening to the autobiography, tip my hand here, of uh, – Oh, what is that guy's name from National Review? William F. Buckley Jr. And his father had not only you know, a piano and classical music tutor come to the home. His, he and his huge Catholic family, his brothers and sisters were all tutored at home until I believe it was high school. But they were forced to sit alone individually in a room and listen to an hour of classical music every day. And he said it took about six months to gain an appreciation for the music. Didn't like it at first. Took six months, and then, then they loved it. And then I was listening to a podcast with a professor. Uh, was it a professor? Or was it was a producer uh, of classical music on NPR. And she said that when you are a trained classical musician, you're trained to listen specifically in a way that no one else is trained to listen the way that these kind of professional musicians are so that they can hear and understand and bring out the depth and the quality of these classical masterpieces in a way that contemporary music just simply does not have that depth. That is one way that we can kind of quantify and assess quality of music is that there's a depth to these classical masterpieces. they're not an accident of history that just well anything that came out in from you know right. Vienna and Austria uh, in that period would have been phenomenal they they stand the test of time for a reason
0: well what's been interesting we've been reading the Opal Wheeler biographies of the composers m- many composers and what's been fascinating about the childhood of these great composers such as Bach and Beethoven and Handel is the amount of music that they were exposed to as children. So Bach, for instance, his whole family is, you know, the box, the singing box they you know, they have all these different musical capabilities. So he grew up in this culture of, of music, but not only that, they had um, just this deep love and appreciation for the different instruments. So, you know, as he's learning these instruments and trying to just enjoy them it's like there he has a deeper well to draw from because he's been exposed to all this beauty and majesty you know around him Um, and not just you know one day I'm gonna pick up you know decide I'm gonna play the harpsichord and I've never been exposed to this a day in my life no it's you know, I'm getting I'm, I'm around all this and then um, getting to perform and just delight in it. Really, uh, it's been really fun to enjoy those together and to get to know, you know, some of the ways these guys like one of them handle his father wanted him to be a lawyer. Um, But, again, he was just so taken by the music that he would steal away upstairs to play his, um, oh, I forget what it was. It's not a piano. It's some some other type of piano-type instrument and uh, was practicing and practicing. And then he just started memorizing all these different pieces and, um, you know, of course, is discovered and, you know, anyway, and we get handled. So, anyway. Yeah, I think we don't get those life. Our our children aren't going to have that exposure since we are not ourselves musical. You know, there might be other families that you know. There's a culture of music.
1: Well, you're exposing them to the different composers. We're listening to classical music. They're taking piano lessons. You're going over. You've got the art pieces as well, right?
0: Yeah, but it's nothing that. A family jam session would be where you just see the musical notes dancing in the air and you're well I was going. I was going to I
1: was going to say that this is distinct from Being an artist yeah, whether it be I mean they mentioned design architecture sculpture dance What you're talking about of an environment of a musical family, you know, I've had exposure to those families It is beautiful but that's a different thing than what he's talking about here. He is talking about familiarity. a familiarity with the master creations. Sure. This is art appreciation in all of the different media. Mm-hmm. And recognizing, again, we have a lot to be proud of as a human race. Yeah, Of the type of art that we have produced over millennia. So much of it inspired by... Religion. It's a big part of culture and it's going to last. While the art of our current day is trash, is disposable, no one will care about it next year. You know, these masterpieces that have lasted for a thousand years, they're going to last another thousand years because of that. And that's that that, those things are enduring and it speaks again goes back to item number one with human nature. You know, we have to really understand and and gain some appreciation for these things. And that's something that needs to be inculcated without being deliberate. You know, we play we play video games. We watch reality TV. We listen to podcasts. very disposable. So, yeah, yeah, I just want to differentiate on that. We're going to wrap this up somehow. Number 11. The power of accurate observation and recording. In the British upper classes, if you could not draw what you saw with your eye, you, in fact, were not seeing what was there. Drawing was a way to sharpen the perception. And this is just the visual, as opposed to what I was talking about last time with the auditory, of learning how to hear Mm -hmm. classical music. This is learning how to see with the artist's eye. We've done some of this where it's like you show them something and Mm -hmm. and then you take it away and say, draw what you saw. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, they realize they didn't really see anything.
0: Sure. And then we also do this with our nature study. Mm -hmm. We'll um, have a specimen and put it out and try to draw it or uh, take a, even, I'll even use a um, coloring page of, say, a dandelion or daffodil. And we'll try to draw that because that kind of gives us the basic outline. And then as you do that, then you can start to recreate it. Reagan does this a lot where she traces things. And now she's able to draw things much better on her own because she has imitated that thing really well. Um, I'm studying to do another nature study guide on the weather and I keep running across people saying well if you draw it then you're able to understand the way it moves through space better you're able to get the shape more ingrained in your in your mind so so speaking of you know drawing clouds shapes so that you can start to understand the different types of clouds so this just it's it's similar to narration. It's, it's
1: really amazing how much overlap there is between what he's talking about here and the Charlotte Mason uh, principles as you discussed. Number twelve, John Taylor Gatto's favorite principle: the ability to deal with challenges of all sorts. This is gets to that concept of of grit, resiliency. Too frequently, I see. Um, educators trying to get to this through flattery and words of affirmation and i strongly believe that that can never develop the type of grit uh that confronting challenges and systematically working and failing and then succeeding to overcome actual challenges for each person gives you the sense of internal locus of control and a bias for action that's so important Gatto says, one person's challenge is another's ho-hum. To know what will challenge your child, you need to know your child very well. For the painfully shy, perhaps that challenge is public speaking. For the coward, perhaps mastering a martial art or a physical sport would be appropriate. Understanding where the challenges are, not because every weakness needs to be made a strength. You know, I'm a big believer in building on your natural strengths but to understand that you have the ability to overcome and simply not shy away from mm-hmm. those areas that may be weak or may be a challenge. You know, you cannot go through life simply avoiding difficult difficulties.
0: Like Teddy Roosevelt says, so that your face shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat.
1: Quite so. Number 13. A habit of caution in reasoning to conclusions. This was another short section. Gattos gives us a simple example. Should Iraq be invaded by the most technologically advanced military in the history of the world? So you can tell this is about 14, 15 years ago, uh, the 2004 era probably. We can reason to these conclusions, and yet the law of unintended consequences uh, means that our reasoning can be faulty. Uh, and number 14 – the 14th principle of elite private boarding schools, a constant development and testing of judgments. Going through the exercise of making a judgment, discriminating value, and keep an eye on your predictions to find out how much you've missed or how correct you have been. This is something I've heard about with regards to uh, training an investor. You develop a, an investment thesis you you know you don't even have to invest any money you're simply saying i i would you know enter into a position of such and such size and invest so much in such and such company these are the reasons why this is my analysis and then you have it written down and you can look back over time to see how that played out not only was it were you lucky to make perhaps you made the investment it went up and it looks great but then the reasoning that you wrote down turned out it was not due to that reasoning at all. Maybe some new uh, strategy came out that you had no way of knowing about. Perhaps a competitor failed, who knows what. Um, but that's how investors develop this concept of their own judgment and an accurate uh, reckoning of that judgment. And so Gatto talks about doing that with regards to one's life as well. Out in the world, personal life, career, academic, etc. You could keep an investment journal or a judgment journal to say, you know, this is my opinion about this. This is the reason why. This is how I expect it to turn out. Starting to understand decision-making and decision-making processes. Good decisions can turn out poorly. Bad decisions can turn out well. Professional decision-makers professional gamblers, professional investors, they develop decision-making processes which they work to hone to make it more likely that they will reach good outcomes. Even though you know there's risk, which is variability and chance out in the real world, as you develop your judgment, they would expect your judgment to improve. And so... That is the 14th and final principle of elite schools according to John Taylor Gatto. Uh, we'll do a little write-up about this. You can find it on YouTube if you just uh, YouTube John Taylor Gatto, G-A-T-T-O, 14 principles of elite schools. You'll see it. It looks like he's in front of some like Hawaii background. It's really bizarre, uh, but really good, really good material. So think about – whether you agree with all those, talk it over with your spouse. Think about if you, if these are some things you want your child to get, are they getting these and how at their current education uh, experience or model at their current school, or do you need to supplement at home? uh, If you're sending your kids to school and if you're homeschooling, how can you build that into your, your habits I'm such a strong believer that you have to build these things into your routine. We talk about a thousand things, and the way we got there was we built routines one habit at a time, one routine at a time, so that you end up doing a whole lot of things that if we were just to dump it on you, you'd say, boy, that's overwhelming, I could never do all that. We didn't get there by just downloading a, a binder of things to do and then doing that every single day. We did one thing at a time. Thanks for our listening to Homeschool young, Parents Podcast with Kevin and and Joy. One subject if you at a enjoyed time, today's episode, could you please leave us a
0: review it on. in iTunes?
1: Uh, you're not going to educate time, your children overnight. Up your you're family. not going to get rich overnight. You're not going to get in great shape overnight. Take the long view of this thing. Enjoy the process. It's been our pleasure.